Well, welcome back to the letters of John. Um, today we're going to be in 2 John, and the title of this sermon is Lovingly Inhospitable. A couple of weeks ago, before Easter, we finished the book of 1 John, and today we're going to tackle 2 John, the whole book. But don't worry, it's a short one. It's 13 verses and only 245 words in Greek. So it's almost like a tweet. (laughs) But don't be confused. While it is short, it packs a punch. It's a very serious topic that John wanted the church then and the church now, us, to know. So let's dive into the text and see what John has to say. 2 John, starting in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Do you... Consider yourself more of a truth person or a love person. You know, either you just tell it like it is or you just love everyone. I want us to see that John's purpose for writing this short letter is to disabuse us of that distinction. He wants us to understand that As a Christian, there's no either or. You can't be a truth person without being a love person, and you can't be a love person without being a truth person. A true Christian is both full of truth and full of love, defined biblically. So look with me at the first couple of verses. This is the greeting to the letter, verses 1 and 2. He says, The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but all who know the truth, 
because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Notice first that John calls himself the elder. What does he mean by that? Well, first and foremost, he was a pastor. He uses the term presbyteros, elder, pastor, shepherd. In the scriptures, all three refer to the same office in the church. And so John is speaking to them pastorally here. But he's also a very old man at this point. He's 80 to 90 years old. He's full of wisdom and speaking as someone who's seen a few things. So it's pastoral and it's grandfatherly wisdom that we would do well to listen to. So that's who's writing. Then who's he writing to? says, the elect lady and her children. Who's that? While it's possible that he's writing to an individual woman and her kids, that's highly unlikely. Instead, he's most likely writing to a local church and her members. Throughout scripture, we see God's people referred to as the bride of Christ or as a wife. I think of Isaiah 54, 6. It says, for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. Further, we've seen John repetitively call the church children in 1 John. It makes most sense contextually and biblically that he's writing to a church and to her members. And what's the very first thing that he says about and to them? He says, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I what? Love in what? Truth. Truth. There's no doubt about it that John loves this church, and he loves them with an agape love. I want us to remember what Rob taught us from 1 John 4. Agape is one of four words used for love in Scripture. And it's the only word that won't fail us. It's not based on our feelings. Feelings come and go. It's not based on our emotions. Emotions can be unstable. Agape love is from God. It's unconditional and supernatural. Understand this. Uh, There are going to, hear this loud and clear, there are going to be times when you don't have good feelings or emotions towards the church, God's people. But we're called to love one another with an agape love. That's the, the love that John has for this church and for her members. But notice that it's not just love, is it? He loves them in truth. And not only John, but all who know the truth. Why? Because the truth abides in us and will be with us forever, he says. Even the greeting of grace, mercy, and peace in verse 3 is given in truth and in love. Are you starting to see the pattern here? What John seems to be saying to them is that their love for one another is centralized around gospel truth. You may be, at any point in time, 
You may be frustrated with one of the elect lady's children. You ever experienced that? But yet, you love them. Why? Because you both believe and love the gospel. Put another way, shared commitment to the gospel produces love. Shared commitment to the gospel produces love. Let's keep going. Look at verse 4. He says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. So this would be like John writing to us and saying, Hey, Santa Cruz Baptist, I bumped into some of your members down at the beach, and I couldn't be more excited. In my conversation with them, it was clear that the pattern of their lives is truth. They're walking in the truth. They're obeying God's commands. In other words, he's saying, based on the sample size, your church is known for truth. It's my hope and prayer that this can be said of us as a church, that if anyone bumps into any of you around town, that you're known for truth. Side note, do you see that this love for truth It's actually what gives John pastoral joy. It's not numbers. It's not budget size or their great children's program. He's stoked because they're walking in truth. The faithful obedience of God's people. That's what gives me joy too. Uh, When I hear that God's people, you, are living true, obedient, loving lives in Santa Cruz County. That gives me true joy as a pastor. So, how do we do that? How do we, as God's people, the children of the elect lady, how do we walk in the truth? Well, we fill ourselves with scripture. We saturate our thoughts with God's word. We pray for God's wisdom. We talked about this in Sunday school several weeks ago. Our evangelism, our sharing of the good news of Jesus, our evangelism is aided by being known as people of wisdom. If you're known as someone who tells white lies or or embellishes the truth or, or regularly says things that are shaky at best, why would anyone believe you when you start to talk about Jesus? On the other hand, If you're known as someone who's solid, who tells the truth regardless of their circumstance, or who holds the truth even when it's unpopular, you're gaining plausibility and credibility for the gospel when you do that. When the world is chaotic and raging all around you and you're known as rock solid, that adorns the gospel. But back to the question. How do you walk in truth? How do you walk in truth? Well, before you can walk in the truth, you've got to know the truth. So commit yourself to God's word. Let it shape your thoughts and how you live. And look at what John quickly pairs with this statement about truth. Verse 5, he says, And now I ask you, dear lady, Not as though I were writing you a new commandment, 
but the one we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. Do you see that? Truth and love. Truth and love. Unfortunately, a lot of truth people are absolute jerks. You know, they're always right, and they don't care at all for others. They're not loving, and they don't feel like they have to be because they're on the side of truth. On the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, a lot of love people say that they just love people too much to be concerned with doctrinal error. This, too, is a huge mistake. We have to be both. We have to be both. Be known for walking in the truth and be known for loving one another. To further this call, look at what he writes in verse 6. He says, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Well, what's the commandment that he's talking about? Daryl Del Hussey did such a great job of walking us through this commandment. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40 says this, says, but when the Pharisees heard that he, meaning Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these, on these two commandments, depend all the law and the prophets. So the great commandment is this. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And love isn't an undefined thing in scripture. But one commentator says it this way. He says, proper love is shaped and informed by the commands of God. To love another person is to do what God commands us to do or not to do in regard to them and is to help them obey God's commands. Any action toward the other person that violates God's commands, no matter how well intended or how romantically inclined, is not love. In other words, love is defined by truth, the truth of God's commands. Listen to what Matthew Henry says about this. He says, It is a sign that our friends are faithful indeed, if, in love to our souls, they will not suffer sin upon us, nor let us alone in it. I love that. So don't claim to be a truth person who loves God if you don't love your neighbor. Don't claim to be a love person if you don't give a rip about God's commands and his truth. Truth and love go together. This is essential for Christian witness in a lost and broken and dark world. Okay, truth and love. Love and truth. Keep this squarely in your mind. They're not enemies, they're twin brothers. These are the pillars of what we should be known for as the elect lady, the church. So 
Look at where John goes next. While he's built the foundation for us in verses 1 through 6, this seems to be the core reason for him writing to this church. Uh, Look what he writes in verse 7. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Remember what he's talking about here. Gnostics, those who who taught false things, partial truths about Jesus that weren't truths at all. They left the church. They went out into the world as evangelists, sharing their false gospel to any who would listen. And this kind of a thing, according to the Apostle John, is deceptive. It's against Christ. They're denying the full humanity of Jesus. Friends, this isn't an academic issue for theology professors to debate. John is writing here to who? The local church. He's writing to you, Christian, in the gathering, one of the children of the elect lady. You need to be aware of how destructive false teaching is. Wrong views of Christ are damning to your soul. If Christ wasn't fully God and fully man, you and I are still dead in our sin. Note also that this isn't a minor problem. John says that there are many of them who have gone out. The problem is no less of an issue today. There are many different Jesuses taught about out there in the world. There's the New Age Jesus, who's a good guru but not divine. There's the self-help Jesus, who's only concerned with you and your mental health. There's the prosperity Jesus, who will make you healthy and wealthy and never lead you into suffering. There's the Jesus of theological liberalism, who may or may not have existed historically. There's so many different Jesuses out there, but there's only one that can save. The Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus that John went to great lengths to proclaim in both his gospel and in his letters. John's warning the church that there are many deceivers who are out in the world doing the work of Satan and preaching the false gospel. That's reality. So, in light of that reality, what do we do? Look at verse 8. Watch yourselves. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for but may win a full reward. Isn't that interesting? The first solution, after warning of false teachers, is to watch yourselves. And I'll point this out, that this is a plural command, not given just to the pastors of the church, but to the church itself. You all, y'all, are called to guard gospel doctrine. One commentator writes this. He says, We are not told to burn heretics, 
but rather not to be burned by them. That's exactly right. Watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. Know right doctrine about Christ so that when the deceptive teaching comes, you won't get burned. And the stakes are high here. Look at verse 9. He says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. I want to recall and and remember what John told us in 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12. He told us, and this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. In other words, this is life or death stuff here. False teaching is deadly serious. And it's in that context that John writes verses 10 and 11. And I believe this is where he's been driving us to. Verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. What was John's main point in verses 1 through 6? That true Christians are full of what? Truth and love. Love and truth. If someone's peddling poison and the stakes are life and death, I'll ask us this question. Is it loving to receive them into your house and to be hospitable to them? No. It's deadly dangerous for you and for everyone who looks to you as a source of truth. If I'm known, if I'm a known Christian in my neighborhood or in my family, and I'm cozy with a false teacher, I'm either implicitly or maybe even explicitly affirming that teacher. My neighbor or even other church members can look at me and say, well, if Drew's okay with that teaching, I guess it's okay. Now, I am held to a higher standard as a teacher of God's word. James 3 tells me that. But I want us to hear this. This is a responsibility for every Christian. Don't be hospitable to teachers who distort the gospel. Don't Support them in any way. I think that's what John's point here is. He's not saying that we shouldn't be kind to a Mormon missionary or to try to win a false teacher to Christ. He's not necessarily saying that we shouldn't physically allow them into our home. What he is saying is don't give them a base to teach from. Don't provide for their ministry in any way. Make it abundantly clear that you don't affirm them in their teaching. Deceptive doctrine is damning. And so we have to take it seriously as a church. It it isn't because we're stuffy and rigid and that we just have our heads up in the clouds. It isn't that. It's because truth and love go together. The most loving thing in the world that we can do is to be clear on the truth of Jesus Christ. 
that he was and is the Son of God, who became flesh, born of a virgin, fully human and fully divine. That he lived a perfect life in every way, joyfully obeying God's commands. That's true of Jesus. That he died a substitutionary death in our place for our sin. And that he rose from the grave three days later to make us right with God. Anyone who doesn't teach that should not be shown hospitality or supported by us in any way. They're deceptive. And according to John, anti-Christ. So, what does this practically look like, you might be asking? Well, I'm sure there are a number of applications that we might make, but I want to highlight at least two. Number one, we must reject ecumenism that doesn't have real gospel unity. We must reject ecumenism that doesn't have real gospel unity. What do I mean by that? Well, throughout the last 30 or 40 years, there's been a movement known as the ecumenical movement that pushes for all churches just to be unified no matter what they believe. They often quote Jesus' prayer from John 17, where he prays that we would all be one. That's a great prayer. It's a fantastic prayer. But Jesus assumed gospel unity there. What does Jesus pray? John 17, verses 20 and 21. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that? Us. Jesus is praying for us. He prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I'll ask the question, did the Father and the Son have gospel and doctrinal unity? Yes. They did. Did Jesus just agree with everyone in the name of love when he was here on earth? No, he didn't. Jesus cares about and prays for the unity for his disciples, for us, but not at the expense of gospel truth. It sounds so good to say, let's just all get along and be unified. But what if you're being asked to unify with someone who distorts the gospel for others? Your unity with them sends a message that you affirm what they teach. We have to be discerning as a church. We have to be clear on the gospel. And we must reject ecumenism that doesn't have real gospel unity. Now, I'm all for, hear this loud and clear, all for gospel partnership with other gospel-believing, gospel-teaching churches. I've made it a goal of mine to create that kind of a culture in this church where we speak well of, we pray for, and we encourage other churches. We're not meant to be out on an island by ourselves as the only real church in town. That's just not true. But we very intentionally don't pray for certain gatherings in town that we believe have abandoned the gospel witness. We're not to receive them into our house. 
or to give them any greeting. We're to be lovingly inhospitable. And again, this isn't hateful. It isn't hateful at all. It's loving to the members of the church so that there's no confusion over poisonous doctrine. It's loving to them and the other gathering because there's no sense in which we lead them to believe that they're on the right track. We're not patting them on the back and saying, keep it up, you're doing great, we affirm you. It's loving to non-believers who aren't confused by a big conglomerate of churches who all teach different things about Jesus. That's confusing. We love non-believers by being clear on the gospel. It's also loving to Christ who doesn't get distorted and watered down by bad doctrine. I've recently heard it put this way, and I think it's extremely helpful. There are national borders and state borders. National borders and state borders. State borders would be doctrinal disagreements we have with other gospel-believing Christians, differing views on baptism, church government, the end times, things like that. We can disagree about these things and still be part of the same country, so to speak, but in different states. National borders would be doctrinal disagreements over Christ and over the core of the gospel. To disagree on these truths puts you outside of the country called Christianity. Jesus' prayer in John 17 isn't for unity at all costs. It's for unity within national borders. The worst forms of ecumenism are dangerous and deadly, and we should steer clear of them. So that's one application. The second, we need to be discerning on the music we sing. We need to be discerning on the music we sing. I would say that this is minor compared to application point one, but unfortunately, it's not. And I know that this is controversial before I even say it, but the music we sing as a church does so much all at once. First and foremost, the music we sing teaches doctrine. Music sticks in our heads, sticks in our hearts. Our kids sing these songs repetitively throughout the week, for good and for bad. Music sticks in your heads and your hearts, and it comes out in how you think about God. It comes out in how you speak about God. It comes out in how you pray. So we can't allow heretical theology into the songs that we sing. Second, and this is the more controversial part, we must be discerning about the sources of the songs we sing. Worship music has become somewhat of a Trojan horse in the church. Catchy, well-written, great songs have been written, produced, and recorded. They've made their way into gospel-believing churches, and they're from churches that have faulty views of Jesus and the Trinity. All of a sudden, when a church sings these songs, they're implicitly supporting false teachers in a gospel-confusing church. The false church gets royalties from the songs 
through the CCLI license. Maybe you're not aware of that. Further, when a healthy church sings these songs, they're implicitly affirming the doctrine of the source of the song. Doctrinally, we begin to create a sign outside the water that says, oh, it's safe to go in, when it's not. We must be discerning about the songs we sing as a church, not receiving into our homes or giving greeting to false teaching. Now, admittedly, there have been times over the last couple of years when a song or two has slipped through and we've sung it. But it's our goal and our practice to be as discerning as possible when it comes to the songs that we sing. Not because we're rigid, old, get-off-my-lawn type of people, but because we love you as Christ's bride. Now, in closing, I want to point us to how John ends this letter. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Isn't this great? Even even in the first century, John knew that face-to-face communication far supersedes writing, or in our day, texting. Not at all a main point of today's text, but this is just good advice. If you have important things to communicate, Do them face to face. Love and truth. Truth and love are the twin pillars that we must be committed to as Christians. May that be said about Santa Cruz Baptist Church, that that we have a death grip on truth and that we're the most loving people in this county. God, may it be so. Let's pray.